0: This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and inspire you in your walk with God. It's time for the Word of God, isn't it? So, book of Psalms. The book of Psalms... Psalm 14, title of the message tonight is The Anathema of Atheism, The Anathema of Atheism. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand and who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. The anathema of atheism. In the New Testament in Paul's writings, he uses this word anathema to describe something that is accursed. For example, in 1 Corinthians twelve three, he says, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed, let him be anathema. And then 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty two, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, anathema. Those are hard words, aren't they? that's strong, isn't it? If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of the day, Paul says, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. So that which is irreverent, unholy, ungodly, which is against God, disbelieves God, denies God, misrepresent God, is accursed anathema. Psalm 14, atheism is anathema. All who deny the reality of God or the revelation of God is anathema. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, the word fool, we need to make some clarification here. The word is nabal. There's different Hebrew words, but the word here is nabal. And Nabal, you may remember, was the name of the husband of Abigail. You remember how David sent some of his men to get some food for the feast from Nabal, that rich sheep herder, and he dismissed them. He was such an uncouth, ungodly, irreverent, had no time for David or his God or anything. And if it hadn't been for Abigail, David would have slaughtered him and all of his sons, all of them. And his wife said, He is a fool. Fool by name and a fool by nature. It's not talking about intellect here. Someone may have a brilliant intellect and still, scripturally and spiritually speaking, be a fool. It means morally perverse, morally perverse. So the fool David speaks of in Psalm 14 is someone who is morally perverse, not talking about their intellect. It's talking about their heart. It's talking about their attitude towards God. This is a man who does not and will not believe God. Not because it's intellectually impossible to believe God, but because he's morally perverse and chooses not to believe God. By his own choice, he chooses not to believe God. Atheism is not an intellectual problem, it's a moral problem. It's not a problem of the head, it's a problem of the heart. The fool has said, in his heart, not in his head, in his heart there is no God. That's why it goes on to say, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. Now, of course, atheists say that it is unscientific to believe in God. It is unintellectual. It's a denial of free thinking. It's even delusional, some say. Uh, Others somehow believe that if we believe in God, then we have parked our brains that it's mumbo-jumbo, it's just pure superstition that has nothing in fact. But in doing so, they, they are denying that we are spirit. All they're concerned about is mind and body, but we're more than that, we are Spirit. We have a spirit, that indefinable but extraordinary part of us that separates from all other life forms on earth. God breathed and demanded the breath of life. It's more than just breath. It's more than just... It's something indefinable spirit God put within human beings. Atheism and evolution cannot and will not accept that we are spirit. Because to do that, would require a belief in something that is unquantifiable, that's immeasurable, that you can't put in a test tube, that you can't weigh. And so they said, we cannot believe in that. It's not scientifically observable. Well, neither is love, is it? But we believe in that. What does a yard of love look like? Hmm? And so to accept this, you'd have to put God into the equation. You'd have to put faith to believe into the equation. And once God is introduced, then we become accountable and responsible to God. And atheism will never, ever accept that. They just won't. As an example, let me quote to you Richard Dawkins, who is the arch atheist. In fact, he's more than that, he's an anti theist. Let me explain to you one more time. Atheism an atheist is someone who does not believe in God, a theist is someone who does believe in God, from theos, God. So a theist is someone who believes in God. When you put the A in front of that little prefix A, atheist means none, a non-believer in God. So an atheist is somebody who does not believe in God. Richard Dawkins is an atheist, but he goes further than that. He is an anti-theist. He's not just someone who says, well, I don't believe in God, so it doesn't matter, so don't bother me. He goes all out to try to denigrate anyone who believes in God. He's so anti-God. He's an anti-theist. Now, here's what he says, discussing whether the universe arose by sheer chance, which is what an atheist and evolutionist believes. Here's what he said, superficially, the obvious alternative to chance is an intelligent designer. But I am afraid I shall give God very short shrift. As an explanation of organized complexity, he simply will not do. Now, that is a stupid, daft, ignorant answer. It doesn't even make sense. He even talks about organized complexity. And yet, in order to deny God, he must say it was pure chance, which is illogical. Pure chance does not create or fashion something that's organized complexity. In effect, what he's saying is, like the scribes and Pharisees said about Jesus, we will not have this man to rule over us. We are our own God. That's what he's saying. Another one who is equally determined to give God short shrift is Harvard scientist George Wald, who's the winner of the 1967 Nobel Peace Prize for Physiology. Here's what he said. This is even worse. When it comes to the origin of life on earth, there are only two possibilities, either creation or spontaneous generation. In other words, it just happened. So he says, there's only two possibilities, either creation or spontaneous generation. Then he says, spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago. Actually, it's come back in vogue again. (laughs) Because they keep going back to it. But he said it was disproved 100 years ago, but that leads us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. But then listen to what he says. We cannot accept that. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible that life arose spontaneously by chance. <laughs> In other words, I don't believe that life rose spontaneously by chance, but I'm going to believe it because I don't want to believe God. <laughs> I mean, that's terrible, isn't it? But at least he's being honest. At least we know where he stands. He will not believe God, but he chooses to stand up for something he really doesn't believe in either spontaneous generation he just does not believe in it but he says I'll accept it because that's better than believing in God that's atheism for you now let me talk to you uh, a few moments tonight about the two witnesses No, not the two witnesses in Revelation 11 in case you're wondering the two witnesses in Romans chapter 1 And every person on earth, everyone, every human being is subject to these two witnesses. All of us know them. All of us has experienced them. What am I talking about? Well, John Phillips calls these two witnesses the witness of creation, which is external, external and the witness of conscience, which is internal. So God has given to every human being two witnesses that he is. By the way, the Bible never ever sets out to prove God. It starts off in the beginning God. It doesn't set out to prove there is a God. The assumption is there is a God. You either believe that or you don't believe it. But the Bible doesn't go out of its way. There are many things to cause us to believe there is God, but the Bible doesn't go out of it. And the Bible writers didn't go out of their way either to try to prove there's a God. It starts off with the assumption, well, there is a God and the beginning God. So let's move on from there. So, in Psalm 19, just as an example, just for a moment, let's talk about the witness of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout the whole earth and their words to the end of the world. In other words, God says, if we look up, anywhere in this world there is all the evidence that you may need to point you to believe in god all we have to do is look up and it speaks every man's language there's no language on earth that doesn't understand when you look up but then you've got a choice when you look up did god make that or did that just happen Do I believe in God or I don't believe in God? In Romans chapter 1 verse 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it fools. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so we have the witness of creation that is available to every human being on the face of the earth. No scientist in the world, even the most ardent Atheist or evolutionist would ever suggest that this universe and everything in it is nothing less than a wonder of complexity and design. Even Docking said about its complexity. So they can't deny that. In fact, it intrigues them. They wonder at it. They try to figure out why is that? So there's no denial of that. They have to admit the very world that we live in, the very universe that we're in, the very galaxy that we're in, is of the most wonderful complex design. Our very bodies are complex. So they can't deny that. But it's what you do with that knowledge. So from a single atom to an animal, from the human body to the solar system, it's all fastened together in the most intricate, complex way. One single brain cell that you've got. They say is more complex than the telephone system in a city the size of New York or London. That's not a creationist sense. That's what scientists say who don't even believe in God. You've got 10 billion of them. I don't know how many we're using, <laughs> but we've got them. How complex is that? No scientist would ever argue that their microscopes or their telescopes or their isotopes or their spectrometers were not designed by someone with intelligence. Yet when it suggested that the universe could not have happened without some superior intelligence, it's classed as preposterous. It's ridiculous, they say. It just happened. Happenstance. Just A fluke, pure luck, it just happened. How ridiculous is the stand of an atheist when it comes to even rational logic? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Why do they do that? Verse 18 says, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The word suppress means they hold down They put it down, and they hold it down. It keeps coming up, but they keep pressing it down. Because every single human being is born with the belief that there is a God. And at some point, they have to make a choice what they're going to do with that knowledge. But he said there, Paul, that they suppress it. They hold it down. Why? Because to believe in God means you're accountable and you're responsible, and it may change your lifestyle. And you may not want your lifestyle changed. So what are you going to do? You're going to suppress it. You're going to hold it down. You're going to say, I don't believe in it. And that's what they do. Of course, they say they never believed in it. But children are not born atheists. They may be born into atheism, they may be born into an atheist family, but they're not born atheists. There's an instinctive belief, even if they don't say God, something greater, some superior intelligence. Something had to make all this. To believe that it just happened borders on the insane. It's ridiculous. But then there's the witness of conscience. There's these two witnesses. Notice what it says in verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. You see, it's a problem of the heart, not the head. It's manifest in them. Everyone has a conscience. We're born with a conscience. We instinctively know right from wrong, good from evil. Even the smallest child, it's not very old until it knows right from wrong. And it'll test you, won't it? It'll push the limit as much as you'll let it because it's instinctive. It knows. It's got a conscience. Adam Instinctively knew the moment he had disobeyed God, he was wrong. He knew it. He ran and he hid himself from the presence of God. Nobody had to tell him. He knew. He knew it was wrong. He knew he'd disobeyed. And immediately his conscience checked him. David sinned with Bathsheba. And he knew it was utterly, utterly wrong. And for a whole year, his conscience never let him give any rest. You read it in one of the Psalms. For a year, it says as if his bones were being crushed. He could not let it go. His conscience pricked him continually. Even Judas, after he had betrayed the Lord, he went back to those priests With the thirty pieces of silver, and he threw it at their feet and said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he went out and he hanged himself. His conscience, alas, too late. But his conscience was provoking him. But we can't suppress our conscience. We can hold it down. We can override it until it is seared and hardened, and calloused. That's why people can continue to go on and sin, and deeper sin, and greater sin. And we talk about people who has no conscience. Yes, they have, but they have suppressed it, and they've pushed it down to the point where it becomes hard and calloused, and it takes much more for that conscience to be moved continually. Continually. Romans chapter 2. In fact, if I can just read this from the New Living Translation for you. Romans chapter 2. Well, let me just read from verse 12 of Romans 2. And I'm reading New Living Translation. God will punish the Gentiles when they sin even though they have never had God's written law. And he will punish the Jews when they sin, for they do have the law. For it is not merely knowing the law that brings God's approval. Those who obey the law will be declared right in God's sight. Even when Gentiles, who do not have God's written law, instinctively follow what the law says, they show that it is in their hearts they know right from wrong. They demonstrate that God's law is written within them. For their own consciences either accuse them or tell them that they're doing what is right. The day will surely come when God, by Jesus Christ, will judge everyone's secret life. This is my message, Paul says. So he says in Romans 1, it is manifest in them. Conscience. So God has given Every human being on the face of the earth has given them these two witnesses, the witness of creation, which is external, and the witness of conscience, which is internal. This is why Paul says, and we read it, they are without excuse. He's saying, now hold of a minute. Looking up at the stars is not going to save anybody. That's true. Your conscience is not going to save anybody. That's true. But what it does is, it points us to the one who can and will save us. But it's what we do with that. If someone who's never heard of Jesus, and he's out there in the Gobi Desert, say, and he's sitting looking up at the stars at night, the Milky Way, the thought comes to him, how did that happen? God must have made that happen. Some being beyond this earthly life must have made this. And God, I would like to know who you are. If you made all of this, I want to know who you are. And if somebody thinks that, God will go out of his way to make sure he knows about his son somehow. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He went to Jerusalem at the feast. He went there and listened and heard, but obviously didn't get any satisfaction. He was still searching and seeking, wondering, and how out in the wilderness he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And in effect he's saying, I don't understand, but I want to understand. And what does God do? What does God do? God gets Philip. He's in the middle of revival to quit the whole thing and go out and find that one man in the middle of the desert. You see, if somebody just acknowledges that there's someone or something beyond me and beyond this life that created all this, That's a start. That will not save you, but it's a start. It gets you on the right track. It gets you wondering. And if they say, God, show yourself. Come to me some way. You know, there's much talk today about Muslims and Islam and what's happening in the Middle East, but what we're not hearing is happening a lot is that many Muslims are coming to Christ. And many, many times it's because they've had a dream or a vision of Jesus. Now they know about Jesus in their own writings, the prophet Jesus. But suddenly they get a vision of Jesus and they don't know what to do. It's what they want, the truth. And they want to find more about this Jesus. And so they pray. And many a one has come away from that and God has sent somebody across their path or directed them to go to somebody and they've found Christ. I've just finished reading a book and I don't know, often, often advertise books, but I've just finished reading a book and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting little book. Sally read it too. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Christ. And it helps you to understand where a Muslim comes from. He was a Pakistani Muslim brought up in America in a, in a Muslim family in the States. And he went to college and he met this Christian guy and oh, this over a period of a few years and how eventually he found Christ, seeking Allah, finding Christ. And, and he goes into the whole background of, of the different beliefs that Muslims have and, and, and all the rest, and it's fascinating to read. It's a paperback, get in the faith, it's a fascinating read. If somebody is interested in finding out about God, God will find a way to show them. He'll find a way to do it. And so, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, but God gives us two witnesses. Witness of creation, witness of conscience. It's never a head issue, it is always a heart issue. It's not a mental problem. It's a moral problem. Atheists will try to say, they'll try to keep it in the mind, but it's the heart. And if we can get them to acknowledge it's a heart problem, it's not a head problem. Now, let me just continue just for another few moments. In John chapter 6, Jesus has fed the 5,000. Fantastic miracle. And after feeding the 5,000, they want to make him a king. And that sounds very flattering, but he was having none of it. It Certainly wasn't his time anyway. And so he took a break from that and he went up the mountain to pray. Disciples got into a boat that evening to go over the sea. In the midst of the sea, a great storm arose. Jesus came down from the mountain, walked upon the sea. They all got safe to land. But then the crowd had followed them all around the country and got to where they were. And they were making demands on him. And they wanted more of the same. But he wasn't having it. And he basically told them, it's not the signs you're interested in, it's the food you're getting. You're thinking of your bellies. You're materialistic. And he didn't perform any more turning water into wine or turning bread and fish into feed a multitude. At that moment, he didn't do that anymore. And then he has a conversation with these disciples, which they're struggling to come to terms with and he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and it's obvious he's speaking spiritually but even his disciples are struggling with this and so listen to what he says therefore verse 60 therefore many of his disciples when they heard this said this is a hard saying who can understand it When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and those who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Note this, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. See, these were the ones who enjoyed the miraculous, loved the food that was served up, loved to be in that moment, but when Jesus put some pressure on them, they melted away like snow of a dike, as we would say. And they were gone. Lots of them. Many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They turned away. They walked away. They rejected Christ. They turned their back on Him, and they walked away. But the disciples said, We're not walking away. Because you alone are the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Who else could we turn to? Now, here's the problem Men will either turn to Christ or they will turn away from Christ. They'll either turn to Christ or they will walk away. But if they walk away, what are they walking to? Who are they walking to? Where are they walking? What are they going to do? Because Christ alone has the words of eternal life. He's the only answer. And if they walk away from the answer, what are they going to get? If they walk away from the light, they're only going to go into the darkness. But men walk away. What do they walk away to? To atheism, to non belief. But what has atheism, or its offshoot communism, what has it ever done for mankind? What has it ever done for mankind? In what way has it helped this world? What did the former Soviet Union produce for this world, for mankind? Hmm? What is North Korea producing at this moment for mankind, for its own citizens? Nothing but starvation and bondage. What about China and Cuba? What about the millions that were slaughtered? Their own people, their own subjects, slaughtered by the millions. What has it done for mankind? Why do they need to build iron curtains and great walls and bars and fences? and high security. Is that to keep people out? It's more to keep people in. It's more to keep their own citizens in than it is to keep people out. Because once they get out from that, and once they go into the, particularly to the Western world, and they see how the other half lives, they're very dissatisfied. They're not happy about it. Pastor Alexander in Ukraine and they lived under communism for many, many years. He told us, he says, he says, we had no idea. He says, we hated the Americans, and we had no idea why we hated the Americans. We were just brought up to be told to hate Americans. He says, we called our dogs American names. He says, that's how bad it was. But he says, when communism fell, and we get a taste of what you lot has got, he says, we want it more. We got the freedom to worship. And, and, and we, we begin to see how the other half lives in the Western world. He says, we wanted it. Now, at the moment, it looks as if there's somebody who wants to go back to communism. But there's an awful lot of people in Ukraine who never wants to go back to it again. They had enough of it. Why would you want to go back to that? Have you noticed how, though, even in China... And in Hong Kong presently, have you noticed how that those who've got a little taste of the freedom, how they're asking for more? See the thing that's happening in Hong Kong presently where they're demanding greater electoral rights, fair elections, whereas China's saying, listen, we're going to choose who's going to rule over you, and then when we choose who's going to rule over you, then you can vote for them doesn't seem very democratic. Sure, it doesn't. It isn't democratic, actually. It's just a front. But the trouble is, those who have lived in Hong Kong and those who are flocking into Hong Kong, Chinese from the mainland especially, they've got a taste of this, and they don't want to let it go. In China itself, the Chinese authorities, the communist authorities, has released some capitalism into their country, don't call it that. But they released that into the country. And there's lots of multi-multi-millionaires now. And they've got a taste for it. So now they're in trouble. What are they going to do? Are they going to let that continue? Because if they let that continue, they know that when it comes to election time, it's going to happen in Hong Kong. It's going happen in the mainland if they let this continue. Because it's better. And they don't like that. Because then they haven't got the control. What's happening in Russia today? what's been happening over this past number of years, people in Russia has got more freedoms than they had under all that 70 years of communism, whatever it was. But now Mr. Putin sees that that freedom is threatening their power base. So what does he do? He's clamping down on the freedom and he's clamping down on the internet and he's clamping down on everything and everyone because they want to hold them back and keep them in subjection because it's a threat to them. So who wants atheism and communism, hmm? People want it to get thrown off those shackles for years. Did you notice that North Korea, there's talks with South Koreans at the moment? They're currently saying that the leader of North Korea, they're not sure whether he's been deposed or what. Probably hasn't been, but there's talk going on. But at least North Korea's talking to South Korea. And once those North Koreans, once they get a taste of what the West is like. Don't they don't want a beaten tree bark and grass is the way someone has been eating for years. Absolute scandal is. And so if we turn away from Christ, if we turn away from God, what are we going to turn on to? And this is what has happened all over the world. They shut down the churches. They burnt the Bibles. They shut God out of their nation. And what happened? What did they get in exchange for it? Misery. Terrible misery. But what about Capitalism. What about materialism? Well, people say, well, it's preferable than communism and atheism. Well, it's not the savior of the world either. It's got its own problems. And every one of us tonight is suffering because of it. The bankers, the financiers, Those who awarded themselves millions in great big fat bonuses while their banks were going down the tubes and your pension and my pension and your savings and my savings, if we've got any, was going down the toilet with it. And they're still in power. So capitalism may be better than communism, but it hasn't got all the answers either. Why? Because of the greed and the avarice of men. Because of sin, basically. So is people going to turn to that? Many has turned to false religions, haven't they? See, man has to worship. He must worship. He's created to worship. It's in his DNA. He's built to worship. And if he doesn't worship the creator, he will worship the creature. And that's what Paul says in Romans 1. If he doesn't worship the creator, he will worship the creature. Be that animals, be that nature, be that man himself, but he will worship. He'll not call it that, but he will worship. Did you notice how that, that atheists in Britain and America are starting up what they call, well, they call it a church for atheists. Can you imagine that? They don't sing hymns, they sing pop songs. Somebody will go up and give a lecture and whatever. And there's hundreds going to it. And they said it's wonderful, it's so liberating not to believe in God and look at us, we can draw a crowd, we can fill out a place. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Why do they do that? Because they must express worship. Somehow we must express it. And if it's not expressed in the right way, it'll be expressed in the wrong way. Romans 1.25 Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, Paul says. There you have it. There's the choice. And so there's those who shun atheism, they shun communism, they shun materialism, they shun capitalism, and they embrace Hinduism with its 200 million gods, with its temples for rats and snakes to worship, whose sacred cows will step over a starving man in the street and they will drink its urine. Because they believe it's a God. What darkness. What pitiful darkness when people turn away from the one true living God. Then they're open to every and any false religion. Humanism, God is man himself. He is his own God. It's the deification of man. The theme song for humanism is Sinatra, I Did It My Way. That is the most popular song in crematoriums in the UK. That is played more than any other song. I Did It My Way. That just about sums up humanism. I don't need God, I just need myself. There is no God, there's only man. Of course many false religions and philosophies today no longer believe in judgment to come or hell or sin or responsibility or accountability to God or even a God of their own making. <laughs> Let's eat, live and be merry for tomorrow we die. Hmm? Live like a dog, buried like a dog, and that's it. There's nothing beyond. Isn't that a shame? So this is the anathema of turning away from God and from the truth. An atheist was arguing with a Christian. A Christian was making out that if you become a believer in Christ, your life will change. You'll be a different person. You'll be more amenable to being Christ-like and so forth. And the atheist was having none of it he says there's no absolutely no difference whether you believe in god or don't believe in god believe in jesus or don't believe in jesus it makes no difference so the christian says well let me put it to you this way you're in new york city it's late at night you're driving home you're late you take a shortcut because you want to get home and you know the area that you're going to go through is very dangerous with gang warfare There's shootings, there's drug dealing every day. It's a dangerous place. But you're in a hurry, you're going to take a shortcut, so you do it. Unfortunately, halfway through it, you get a flat tire. So you get your tire out of the boot, you're down on your knees, you're fixed it. You're very, very anxious because this is a dangerous, dangerous place you're in. And it's dark everywhere around you. While you're fixing your tire, a door opens from the other side of the street, and about 10 or 12 young men come walking out of that door and they're walking towards you. Now, he said, tell me, would you would rather that those 12 young men, would you rather they're coming out of a Bible study or a bar? (laughs) He would rather they're coming out of a Bible study than a bar. He'd feel a lot safer. And he was making the point that Christ changes our lives for the better, for the absolute better. Atheism is anathema to God. It's an affront to God. It's an insult to the Creator. And one day it will be judged. So what can we do for those who are atheists? Try to love them and reach them. Try to love them and reach them. It's all you can do, isn't it? There's some, of course, they just put it up as a front to stop you preaching at them. They think that'll throw you off. (laughs) Some of them say that, but in their heart of hearts, they don't really believe it, but they say it. But there's others who do believe it. And they're living in absolute Darkness. And we need to pray for them. You may have a family member who claims to be an atheist. I don't know. You need to pray for them. But somehow God, in his mercy, will give them chances. That their eyes will be opened to the truth. And they'll come to Christ. They'll come to the light. Because if they don't come to the light, they're going to walk further into the darkness. If you read Romans 1 further on, we didn't read you'll see that those who refused Christ, who refused the light, who did not believe in God, they went further and deeper and further and deeper into darkness. To God gave them over to it. Let's pray. Lord, even though that first chapter of Romans was written a couple of thousand years ago, it's still so relevant today because the heart of man has not changed. It is still the same as it ever was. So let us appeal to the heart, Lord, because that's what needs to be changed. It was our hearts that were changed. We became believers. Not because of what was in our head, but because of what was in our heart. So we give you thanks for your word that enlightens us, makes us wise unto salvation. Lord, if there is a family member who is an atheist, we pray for them. Lord, that your light would shine in a dark place, that their hearts would be open to the truth, and Lord, that you would change them. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more messages like this one, visit us online at www.mpc.org.uk. You'll we'll also find a selection of informative videos at youtube.com forward slash Moira